This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the National Security Agency provides foreign signals intelligence to our nation's policymakers and military forces. It's also charged with preventing and eradicating cyber threats. I'll talk to the NSA's Cybersecurity Director on the latest threats and newest technologies in cyberspace. Then, local health departments across the country are distributing a new vaccine, this time for monkeypox. We'll discuss the lessons learned from the COVID pandemic and how they should guide the latest vaccine effort. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The National Security Agency established the Cybersecurity Directorate in 2019. Its goal is to protect the Department of Defense, national security systems, and the defense industrial base from cyber attack. Rob Joyce oversees that directorate as the NSA's Director of Cybersecurity. Rob, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mimi. It's great to be here. There's a lot of people doing cyber in the federal government and within DOD. How do you, what is your specific role in that arena? So we have two big lanes. Um, the first is we have NSA's foreign intelligence mission, and that's really a superpower where we can look into adversary activity, the threats, the attacks, the tools they use, and understand that. And we do that not only for the NSA mission, but we help CISA, FBI, um, the, the greater Department of Defense understand those threats and those activities. Um, the second big area is we're responsible for the keys, the codes, the crypto, and the protection of national security systems. Those are the things that carry classified information or warfighting material. And so that's a pretty big remit, but those are the most sensitive computers, networks, and capabilities the government has. Your mission includes the phrase, quote, eradicating cyber threats. That's a strong word. I mean, isn't this really just a continuous cat and mouse game? It, it is, but that was a deliberate choice that we chose that word. We want people to really aspire to giving the adversary a bad day each and every day. And, and if you choose something less than eradicate, you're settling, right? You're not going to contest, you're not going to push back, and you're not going to take bold action to try to address the growing trends and threats. Well, I want to ask you about uh, one of those threats, the um, and, and specifically about protecting the defense industrial base. The director of the FBI and the head of the UK's MI5 delivered a joint address on the threat from the Chinese government. They said this, quote, they're set on stealing your technology, whatever it is that makes your industry tick, and using it to undercut your business and dominate your market. So what does that mean for companies that the US military depends on? It means they're under attack. They've been under continuous attack for years. And what we see are the Chinese intruding to try to take advantage of our competitive secrets, our intellectual property, our advantage. Um, there's a saying we've been using for a number of years that China is much like a hurricane, right? It is, it, I, I'm sorry, Russia is much like a hurricane. They're aggressive and, and um, come at us hard and fast, but China is climate change, right? They're, they're 
long-term, large-scale, and, and ever-present. And so we worry about that China threat. So, I mean, this joint address is really unprecedented. Why did this come out now? I mean, hasn't the Chinese government always been trying to steal our stuff, going back to them stealing the F-35 plans and before that? Mm -hmm. um, it, it represents our continued effort to address the nation-state threat that China represents. And, and it goes to, you know, again, that climate change. We have to continuously be attentive to the threat and working on programs and, and a lot of collaboration. You'll see that between NSA and FBI. You'll see that between NSA and our international partners like GCHQ. And, and the FBI director um, working with one of our closest allies, um, the UK, is representative of the effort we're putting into it. As far as trends goes, have you seen the Chinese government get more aggressive on that front? We've not seen them be more aggressive, but they are continuous. And that is our concern, is um, we haven't been able to address the threat to the point we're satisfied it's gone away. And, and since they will evolve, we need to keep attention and evolving. You know, a, spokes, uh, a spokesman for the Chinese embassy in Washington uh, said this, uh, we will never encourage, support, or condone cyber attacks. I take it you don't buy that. I, I think the evidence points uh, the other way. Um, th there's, there's significant intelligence. There's a lot of industry evidence. And uh, you, you see, as we join with international partners, um, that there's an understanding across the globe of the tactics and techniques the Chinese are using. And it's really concerning. And it's outside the norms we've come to accept in international cyberspace. Regarding the threat from Russia, you called them a hurricane. Have you seen increased cyber activity since the start of the war on Ukraine? Yeah. So at the start of the war, um, you know, CISA worked with all of us in the community to talk about the need for Shields Up, right? Jen Easterly in the community um, did a tremendous outreach um, to critical infrastructure, government, um, our Defense Department partners um, to talk about the growing threat that the Russia-Ukraine conflict represented. Now, the good news is the, the majority of that cyber activity stayed, stayed confined to the theater. So we saw um, pressure, significant attacks. A lot of the American public doesn't understand just how much cyber capability was brought at Ukraine. Um, two different things happened. Um, one, we all work to help defend against that. But two, the Ukrainians, after being under constant attack for years, have gotten good at recovery and resilience. And so when they had wiper viruses, when they had de denial of service attacks, they went ahead and protected themselves. And, and so that made the difference. But, but there is um, a continuing and ongoing concern that at some point that spills over against our critical infrastructure, right? As you know, but I wonder why hasn't there been that major attack against the United States yeah. from Russia? Um, they're, they're definitely not happy about the sanctions. Right. Um, they have that capability. Is it because they're too busy? I don't think it's too busy, but I think there really is an element of deterrence here, right? Um, deterrence in cyberspace is not you send cybers at me and we send worse cybers back at you. It, it really is all elements of government power. It is the capability of our State Department. 
it is our military, it is the, the allies and coalitions we have, and it's also deterrence by denial. That idea that we were attentive for these attacks. We took action with the private sector. Um, the big cybersecurity companies did an enormous amount to look at Russian tradecraft and work with us to help expose that. So we took away in advance some of the capabilities to come at the U.S. All right, we're going to take a quick pause here, and then we'll come back and continue. Coming up, more of my conversation with the Director of Cybersecurity for the National Security Agency, Rob Joyce. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm talking to the National Security Agency's Director of Cybersecurity, Rob Joyce. Rob, we were talking about Russia and China. Obviously, those are major state actors. What about non-state actors, the individual hackers? What are the trends that you're seeing there? Well, the, the cyber criminals, ransomware, became a national security issue in the last year, year and a half. Um, when you get things like Colonial Pipeline or the Kaseya intrusions where our supply chain was impacted by not nation states, but the criminals. Um, it really raised concern and it started to get the focus of entities like NSA that used to work only the nation state threat. Um, we have to address the national security threats and cybercrime is now a national security issue. How is prevention different for that, if at all? Well, Prevention really means you've got to do the basics. Um, most of the time when people are hit with ransomware, often there are vulnerabilities that are known, exploitable, um, found by the cyber criminals, and they crack the door open using that known vulnerability. It's really hard to do all of the basics. It takes time, resources, and attention, but that's what stops cyber criminals. Tell us about the NSA's Cybersecurity Collaboration Center. What has it achieved so far and what are your priorities? So the Collaboration Center is a recognition that industry in cybersecurity has tremendous talent, reach, and capabilities. What they've wound up doing is um, they've established expertise and reach that the government doesn't have and shouldn't have. So by partnering that foreign intelligence capability we talk about at NSA um, with the entities who have hundreds of millions of endpoint visibility um, that have the, the reach to clean the pipes as bits go by, um, we can do some pretty incredible things for cybersecurity. So what we've wound up doing is starting to engage with those companies where we have an ongoing dialogue between experts, their analysts and our analysts, talking about leads and then going back and forth between what they see inside their networks, um, what's hitting them and what they can stop and block, and, and taking that against what we can see in foreign space and then working together to have impacts. So it's really been remarkable. But the collaboration part requires information sharing and the intel community is not known for liking to share information and be open. So how do you how do you do that and how do you remain effective? Yeah. So it's it's new for us. We're learning. We've been at it about 18 months, um, but we've come a long way already. Um, we have new processes and and a team established who's looking at classified intelligence and trying to find the nuggets that really ought to be extracted, sanitized and then brought down. The sensitive parts is, uh, that we're finding, Mimi, is not what we know, but how we know it. 
So when we disassociate how we got the information from the actual threat, um, we're able to share it. And, and uh, what we're also learning is by finding out what the companies need to know and talking to them about the, the data we're sharing directly, um, they're giving us feedback that lets us tune that intelligence to produce more effective and uh, more powerful information sharing. So what authorities do you actually have within DOD and the IC and then when dealing with um, companies in the defense industrial base? What can you actually make them do? Yeah. Um, so I, as NSA, can't make them do anything, right, as far as the DOD companies um, in their cybersecurity practices. And that actually is a good thing because they don't look at us as a regulator or a law enforcement entity or somebody that can bring liability to them if they share something sensitive. They understand we know how to keep secrets, um, and so that also fosters a level of trust. Um, where I can be very directive is in the keys and codes and cryptography space. We set the national standards for the, the things that encrypt to protect data, and that's the government's last line of defense um, for that sensitive information. So it really is a sweet spot that we can create a partnership where they don't feel threatened, um, but I can give them advice based on our expertise. There's a, there's a great saying, it takes a thief to catch a thief. And because we are out there in foreign intelligence space exploiting networks, we understand where the practical vulnerabilities are. So we come with a, a, a sense of knowledge and experience talking to these companies about what really makes for effective defense and what um, is probably lower priority to implement. I want to ask you about working with our international allies and partners. And beyond telling me, yeah, we're collaborating, we work great <laughs> together, can you offer me specifics as to what you're doing together and what you're looking for from them? Sure. So, you know, certainly the easiest part is the Five Eyes Alliance, where we have um, SIGINT agencies that are our peers, right? Um, and, and in the UK, in Australia, Canada, and New Zealand, where they have their own intelligence capability, but we share and collaborate. Um, what we can then do is take a threat that we're working on, talk to them about what we've understood, let them see aspects of it that we may not see, and then we go and, and collaborate on a joint advisory or when we go out to do joint attribution. And it is so powerful. When you look at the attributions, um, for instance, the things about Russia, Ukraine, where we went out with the EU or we bring NATO nations together, we bring partners and allies well beyond the, the Five Eyes Alliance, um, even beyond um, Europe. And, and that sends a powerful message that the, that the international um, community is coming together against these irresponsible acts. It's really, really um, been a good collaboration. I want to ask you about quantum computing because that's going to affect every industry. How will it impact cybersecurity? Yeah. So, Quantum computers represent a threat to some of the traditional encryption we have today. So they will impact the confidentiality of the messages we transmit, but more importantly, they also are um, threatening the access and identity um, controls on the computers. The things you use to authenticate yourself into a network can be broken by a quantum computer. Quantum computers don't exist yet, um, but it's just a matter of time before we solve the engineering problems to get to quantum computers. 
And so we want to be um, defending against that threat in advance. And so you saw NIST um, just recently come out with the first set of algorithms that have been um, publicly reviewed in a competition to select how we're going to protect against the quantum threat and get those endorsed for use. And so um, we're on the road to getting those adopted into commercial standards, into government standards, and protecting against that threat. Well, Rob, there's a lot more to talk about, but I want to thank you so much for coming in and being on the program. It's been great. Thanks, Mimi. Coming up next, as the federal government responds to a monkeypox outbreak, we'll discuss how to prevent the same mistakes made during the coronavirus crisis. We'll be right back. The White House plans to distribute more than a million monkeypox vaccine doses in the next few months. Public health experts are looking to the worldwide coronavirus response as a guide for what not to do this time around. Thomas Boyke is the director of the Global Health Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Tom, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Can you explain the difference between the makeup of the coronavirus and the monkeypox virus and how it spread? Absolutely. So monkeypox is the first uh, disease threat really since the coronavirus that's being considered a public health emergency. But in many other ways, these two viruses or threats are, are quite different. Monkeypox is a older uh, virus. It's an orthopox virus related to smallpox. Um, it spreads less efficiently, kills far fewer people, is a threat to children, pregnant women, and uh, people that are immunocompromised. Uh, but uh, the other reason is because it's been around, we have tools to address this. There are two vaccines that were developed for smallpox that could be harnessed against monkeypox. We have a test. Uh, there are even potential treatments. And all of that is different from when the coronavirus, which was the new virus, emerged and we had to create everything whole cloth. Well, as you said, it's been around, so we do have testing, but the U.S. isn't really doing much of it. Uh, why is that, and is that a concern? It is very much a concern. Right now, we are seeing a outbreak that has spread. We have nearly 11,000 confirmed cases uh, in 59 countries and territories, and by this, I'm referring to countries where the disease is not endemic. So traditionally, monkeypox has been contained to Central and West Africa. It is now spread to 59 countries and territories beyond that. However, in Europe, where really cases hit hard first, cases are declining fairly significantly, and they've had much better surveillance. And that has helped them identify the risks, be able to communicate uh, public health messaging, um, to start to roll out vaccines. The U.S., again, like in the coronavirus situation, has been very slow to roll out testing. We are largely still flying blind. Testing was limited to public health laboratories, which is, again, what happened in the coronavirus situation. And we really have a very poor idea of the number of cases we have. We do know they're rising, though. We have over 1,000 uh, to date, but the real picture could be significantly more dire than that. So how expensive are the vaccines and how hard are they to get? So the vaccines are uh, fairly expensive, uh, more expensive than in the COVID circumstances and supplies are limited. Again, we're fortunate to have them right at the outset. Um, so this was an investment the U.S. government had made uh, largely to address smallpox. But because there had been a very small outbreak of monkeypox in the past, we do have an approved FDA 
uh, approval to use it for monkeypox. But the U.S. has been slow to get doses. There aren't a lot of doses on the global scene. And even the doses we have have been, have been stuck in Denmark where they're manufactured because we've had some delays in getting that plant inspected by the FDA. And there's only one company making these vaccines. I mean, that's not a very stable supply. It is not. And their production capacity, we're not talking about a company like Pfizer with massive production capacities. Uh, their, their production is quite a bit smaller. Um, they have very limited supplies and they're already being bought up um, by the U.S. and other wealthy nations, which is largely what we saw in the coronavirus situation as well. So then what about low-income countries? Are they able to access the monkeypox vaccine? So far, no, they are not. And this is a point of contention really for two reasons. One is that, again, monkeypox is not a new virus, and people are fundamentally uncomfortable with the notion that uh, this outbreak only becomes a concern when it spreads to wealthy nations that we haven't done very much to respond to this when it was contained to Central and West Africa, but are doing so now. The other part that makes people uncomfortable is many comments have been made uh, in uh, the, the later days of the COVID pandemic that we need to do things differently next time, that poor countries can't be last in line to get vaccines. We still have a scenario where less than one out of five uh, people in low-income countries in Africa in general have been vaccinated for coronavirus. Uh, everybody wanted to see something different, yet we are repeating the same circumstances. So, so, Tom, aside from it just not being fair, what impact does that inequity have on the global outbreak? Fabulous question. So what it really affects is our ability to get cooperation to identify future disease threats early, and to make the global investments we have to, to do better than we did in, in uh, the COVID pandemic. And this is really undermining our ability to convince countries that the next time will be different. So what are your recommendations then? How does the current response need to change that, to ensure that we don't have that repeat of what happened with the coronavirus vaccine? So what we need to do differently is first recognize that this, this is a different disease than, than COVID. Um, what we are largely trying to do here, we're still in a situation where this can be contained and eliminated from countries where it is not endemic. That's important because the more this disease spreads worldwide, the greater chance you get uh, mutations, the greater chance it takes hold in, in uh, other animal populations it might spread to, and then we'd have a really hard time getting rid of it. All that means we should be using the vaccines to contain the spread abroad. Now, that is high-income countries, but to do that, what that means is you need to have an investment in treatment programs for low-income countries that have to happen at the same time. We need to communicate that they're equal priority, but that the needs in this pandemic are different. This is a disease that doesn't kill very many people. It is largely about trying to contain its spread and making sure people get treated as quickly as possible. All right, Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to talk to you. Thanks so much. And we'll be right back. Stay with us. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. 
I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.